says starting recording. Does that mean we're recording, or does that? I yeah, I'm yes. supposed. There it is. Yeah. Justin Let is... everyone know oh. you're being recorded. You're being recorded, Stan. Yeah, it's telling me right up there. There you go. So we'll you're you're in dispatch for September, which has been out. We're doing it a little differently now. We're behind the uh, eight ball, as they say. Uh, you you launched it uh, at the beginning of the month, but we're doing our dispatch now because that's just how it has to be because of the Prairie Festival. Hey, why don't you tell people about the Prairie Festival? Not that they can go, really, but they can go if they're in the area. Uh, sure. Yeah. If you're anywhere near Salina, Kansas, Prairie Festival will be uh, a week from Friday. Well, uh, uh, September 23rd to 25th. Uh, it's the first in-person prairie festival in three years now, uh, but we're uh, we're getting back in the saddle. And uh, the prairie festival is at the Land Institute in Salina, Kansas, where Stan works. And it's like a it's a it's a it's a good old intellectual time as well as a fun time. Wes Wes Jackson, Land Institute founder describes it as the world's biggest intellectual hootenanny. <laughs> yeah, it's a hootenanny and an intellectual experience. That's right. I think that's exactly what, it's exactly the kind of thing Wes would come up with as well. Yeah. Okay, so that's happening, um, which is why we've had to uh, do it a little differently. But you know what? Uh, it's, it's still the same kind of uh, content you're used to from these dispatches. Uh, no vehicular homicide in this dispatch at all oh. uh but you know what we we've got some pretty destructive stuff nonetheless <laughs> um so tell me stan about summit carbon solutions uh it sounds good i think we need carbon <laughs> solutions so this is great right this is all really good tell me about this great carbon solutions that are that are that are coming that are coming and there's not only Summit Carbon Solutions, there's also Navigator CO2 Venture or something like okay, that. Okay, so there it is. Navigator CO2 Ventures, yeah. So between them, that's 3,300 miles of pipelines. Fantastic. Right. And, and they, this is what they propose to do, build these 3,000-plus miles of pipeline across um, Iowa, Nebraska, parts of Minnesota, and, and the Dakotas. And the so purpose, right in the, in the heartland, in middle America. Yeah. And so they, and, and they've got branches uh, of them going, uh, in, like in Iowa, I think um, 34 counties and in, in, um, in, in both between the two companies and all, something like 65 counties. And where they're heading is from um, fuel ethanol plants where they ferment corn and turn it into ethanol to mix in with gasoline. So uh, we grow corn, we feed cars, and yeah. in the process of processing the corn into alcohol to put into cars, because we don't feed people with corn, obviously, we're feeding cars, we produce a whole bunch of CO2, but for the sake of carbon neutrality, we're going to pump the CO2 into the center of the earth? What could go uh, wrong? Yeah, yeah, they will um, 
pull the exhaust out of the uh, smokestacks from these ethanol plants, separate the, out the CO2, uh, liquefy it, put it, which means chilling it uh, very cold. Uh, does put it, it, on, does it use up energy to make things that cold? <laughs> yes. That, yeah. Oh, it's, not, it's not free. It's not, just, oh. Yeah. All, this whole thing is it's very energy intensive process, uh, which is probably, you know, a lot of it's being powered by a coal-fired plant. <laughs> but anyway, the, the, uh, this uh, pressurized liquefied CO2 then is pumped uh, over several hundred miles, uh, will be, if they build this thing, up to North Dakota to the uh, Bakken Formation, which is the source of that huge amount of oil that's coming out of uh, North Dakota, um, okay. and uh, CO2 will be pumped into uh, depleted oil wells to. Um, oh, because there are these big, huge holes in the yeah, in the earth. Yeah. You can pump it in there. There's somewhere <laughs> to put it. But okay, I have a I have a question. If you have cold, liquefied CO2 and you pump it into a, a oil well, is it going to stay as a liquid, or is it going to is it going to get warm and turn into a gas and leak or make a bubble it's, explode. <laughs> uh, it's going, it, it, it's not like it's just going into a big hole. As I understand, this is um, tanks. It, see, these are rock formations with all these cracks and pores. And so they, they pump and pump under high pressure and, uh, and eventually um, seal it up. Um, so the um, and the seal oh, the seals are a hundred percent effective obviously oh oh of course yeah yeah okay now they well that's a relief <laughs> I've looked into that I mean it, it's it, it's down and it'll be down a couple of miles probably I okay. and um they there are um in any way they there seems to be a consensus that it all but a very small part of it is going to stay there except. Okay in cases and, and this is important the only way so far this kind of technology has been used um economically is when in the process of pumping the co2 down into these depleted oil wells they're depleted except um they're not empty and there's still oil down there so they can use the pressurized co2 to push more oil out and Ah, win-win solution, it seems. So that that oil is eventually going to be burned and put more CO2 into the air. So between doing that sort of thing and the huge emissions that come from growing the corn, uh, processing the corn, um, producing the ethanol, um, hauling all this stuff, does does CO2 come out of um like the car when it burns ethanol too? Uh, or, yes. Oh, but, that's a bummer, isn't yeah. it? It's kind of a bummer. <laughs> yes, because uh, yeah, ethanol is a carbon compound, but um it's um it less per gallon of ethanol, it, it produces less CO2 than gasoline, but not. Okay, well that's right? a relief too. But but anyway. <laughs> 
<laughs> You're giving finally. I, I think people come to these, uh, listen to these, and get all this bad news. But this is all great. Uh, you know, <laughs> less less CO2 per gallon. We're talking about pumping into the earth, and it's gonna stay there. This is this is great. This is well, cool. the whole process. Uh, the emissions from the whole process cancel out the um, the retraction of carbon that's mm-hmm. going into the ground, and so it's uh, it, it it's no more um, it, it's really no more um, uh, climate friendly than gasoline, given the whole uh, the whole process. But the the interesting thing is this. These pipelines are going from basically from in this region from the southeast to the northwest, carrying CO2 along almost the same routes that the Dakota Access Pipeline was running, taking oil from uh, North Dakota into the upper uh, Midwest, uh, and, and from there on to other places. Um, and now we have in in that region uh we have, well we had you know the most famous struggle against uh that pipeline was of course the uh, standing rock uh, confrontation yeah there's a book uh, uh let me pause and recommend a book by Nick Estes our history is the future standing rock versus the Dakota access pipeline and the long tradition of indigenous resistance Nick Estes uh, is also one of the hosts of the Red Nation podcast for listeners. I'm sure you listeners of this show all, all, probably all know the Red Nation podcast because they know Sina Rahmani and uh, the East is a podcast podcast. But I just thought, you know, we're talking about Dakota Access Pipeline. We shouldn't yeah. we shouldn't neglect to mention Nick Estes' book, which I highly recommend. Yeah. So so now so, they're fighting. They're going to have to fight these two, I guess. Yeah, so the the same in indigenous communities who uh, had to fight uh, that pipeline are back at it, but this time, uh, because these um, uh, these CO two pipeline companies have to get land, uh, get rights to the land easements to um, uh, cross people's land, uh, the um, the native tribes joined forces with uh, farmers across the region and with environmental groups. And, you know, these are all groups who normally are at uh, odds with each other, but it, it's a, a very unlikely but very uh, beneficial alliance in which they're um, yeah. uh, uh, organizing to not grant uh, easements uh, right. to the companies. And so... Now the companies are um, starting to the process of trying to get eminent domain declared and, and just <laughs> take, take the land. Uh, but doesn't from, eminent domain have to have a, like a government interest? Yeah, but we, yes. And, and so it's in, in yeah. Iowa, for example, it's the Iowa Utilities Board, which will, because I guess the pipeline will be equivalent to a, a public utility. <laughs> Oh, they're shameless. <laughs> they're just and they, shameless. They'll they, they decide. But um, you know, they're, they're, these folks are, are putting up a really strong fight. And they said they learned a lot of 
lessons from uh, the um, Dakota Access pipeline struggle that, you know, learn things that they should have done differently and so forth. And, oh. and I think last time the, the farmers were, were not really nearly well uh, organized. Um, and uh, so they're, they're all uh, working together. Uh, so you have a interview in your dispatch with Mahmoud Fitil. Sounds like maybe West Asian name, but land defense organizer for the Great Plains Action Society. Yes, he he's uh, he's a Tatar from I, oh. I, I believe uh, the area of Crimea. Right uh, on. <laughs> uh, and and yes, yeah, so this uh, alliance of a whole bunch of in, indigenous tribes and groups with the very innocuous sounding name, Great Plains Action Society, or really, (laughs) uh, they're uh, really on the ball, and and Mahmoud is their um, land defense organizer. That's a great, that's a great title. I really uh, enjoyed the uh, conversation with him. Best job in the world, land defense organizer. Yeah. Um, Okay, so... The government. Let's talk a bit about the government because um, it turns out that this uh, project is also going to help with the inflation problem, apparently, because <laughs> it was in the because support for it is the inflation is in the Inflation Reduction Act. So how is this? A, so that, that would make it a win win win, right? I mean, you get more oil, you pump CO2. And you get some tax benefit for it, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah carbon uh, uh, capture and sequestration, as they call it, is getting a whole bunch of money from the Inflation Reduction Act, and that's uh, being counted as uh, uh, climate uh, mitigation. But <clears throat> um, they and and it's. I think something uh, something like eighty dollars. It raised the subsidy or the, the tax credit that companies get for capturing the CO2 or for uh, burying it, or in the case of these pipelines, getting it from one place to the other. They get tax credits for being involved in that. Eighty dollars a ton if they um, or eighty-five dollars if they use the CO2, though, for getting more oil out of the ground, they only get like $60 a ton tax credit, mm-hmm. even though they're canceling out the entire benefit of what they're getting paid for. It's still profitable. I love tax credits. <laughs> <laughs> just, I just love them. <laughs> they're just great. But, uh, you know, you have an amazing paragraph in here that I'm going to read to you. Uh, I like to read people their own paragraphs. But... <laughs> But you say, the primary purpose of these and other carbon pipeline systems was never to reduce atmospheric CO2. Its backers' aim is to turn a profit by spiffing up the environmental image of U.S. feed grain agriculture. The lion's share of U.S. corn production goes to supply two commodities, vehicle fuel and grain-fed meat. And the chief purpose of feedlots and ethanol plants is not to provide for nourishment and transportation. It is to gobble up surplus grain thereby propping up grain prices and the agricultural economy. Cultivating the tens of millions of acres of feed fuel grains, mostly corn and soybeans, 
that generate that huge surplus has led to soil degradation, chemical contamination of air and water, high energy consumption, and massive greenhouse gas emissions. The pipeline would address only the CO2 waste gas produced by fermentation of corn, grain, and ethanol plants, which is a teeny tiny sliver of those emissions. So this is a part of the economy that I would say, like, most people don't understand, right? Like, not because they're dumb, but because this is really obscured like the way that it works you would never think that that you know you're somehow producing so much that you have to do all these things to create value added to keep the prices up um these you know in a world where there you know hunger and grain shortages and and talk you know all this talk of like the ukraine russia war throwing off the supply of grain to the third world uh, what we have feedlots and ethanol plants to deliberately prop up the price of grain, which is, yeah, it's it's hard to it's really hard to wrap your head around the fact that the economy works like this. Uh, as the great journalist Eric Severi once said, the chief source of problems is solution. <laughs> <laughs> ah, that's really good. That's really good. Yeah, well, we have that in the name of the company in this case, don't we? <laughs> right, Summit yeah. Carbon Solutions. Yeah, they're the <laughs> The minute you see a company called Carbon Solutions, you know there's a lot of problems that are going to come out of this. Um, uh, so, uh, Mahmoud Fittal, uh, the, the Great Plains Action Society had a meeting with the utilities board, uh, you report. Yeah. How was that? How'd that go? <laughs> yeah, he said they, they 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 didn't want to hear it, but um, they they um uh, in, in his telling he in his group along with not just them but a bunch of farmers were in there and so forth and and they they gave them hell and they uh, they told them that this uh, utilities board you know will you know. Uh, if you, you know, if you let this thing go through, then we'll, we'll meet these companies out in the field and, yeah. and settle it there. <laughs> there you go. Um, that's how strong our reserve resolve is, he says. The land yeah. is worth it. The water is worth it. Future generations are worth it. You know, I have one last thought about this future generations thing, because um, I was thinking, like, you pump all this CO2 down into the earth, right? And if you don't keep a really good record of where you've pumped it, right? Like, couldn't something happen in 40 years or 50 years where, like, you lost the map or something and somebody goes prospecting for a mineral there or whatever, and then they dig down and then you've just, I don't know, released a bunch of CO2 beyond your calculation? Yeah. There's like a there seems to be a whenever people like they do this in 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 with uranium waste too, right? Like oh, the the nuclear waste is just like buried deep in the and reburied deep in the earth. Yeah. And I just wonder like, you know, it's kind of an assumption that where things are going to be running exactly as they are with all this continuity for the life of these chemicals or <laughs> these materials. Oh yeah, I think there's there's a whole uh, academic discipline um uh trying to design images that will um make clear to people 10,000 or 50,000 years from now who have 
don't, obviously don't know the line, our language, uh, don't know we even ever existed. What kind of universal images can you, but yeah, you don't even know what people are going to look like. And, but um, Don't open this. <laughs> yeah, 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 to you know, show the consequences of getting into nuclear waste. Yeah, like like the Bible is a couple of thousand years old and like people barely understand it, right? But the half-life of some of this stuff is a lot longer than that. <laughs> I, um, so I, I did some reading. Yeah. I did some environmental reading um, that we can chat about. I read Silent Spring, which I should have read a long time ago by Rachel Carson. So that's a classic. They say that it launched the environmental movement. And I, I don't know. I find that a little America-centric. <laughs> but, you know, it, it's early on. It's like 1962 that it was published. 1961, I guess, it was serialized in The New Yorker. Um, and, you know, reading it finally after so long, it was actually a better read. Like, Carson's a great writer. Like, it's, a, it's actually oh. a good read and, like, really good at explaining... Um, you know what I? You know what stuck out for me? I don't know if that you remember it. I don't know how fresh it is in your mind, but but she loves the human liver. <laughs> she talks. She talks about the human liver like like it's it's just it's like the the greatest thing ever. Um, and and I mean she talks about a lot of natural things uh, that way, but I'm I'm gonna I'm just gonna try to find it. But tell me when did you read it and what did you uh, what did you think of it? That was. Uh, either in high school or early in college. Um, Did you read it as part of school? I don't think so. I, I think I, you know, because it, it, you know, this was 10 years after it was published or less. And so there was still a lot of buzz about the book. And so I think, and I was interested in environmental stuff. Okay, I found it. I found it. One of the most significant facts, page 191. One of the most significant facts about the chlorinated hydrocarbon insecticides is their effect on the liver. Of all organs in the body, the liver is most extraordinary. In its versatility and in the indispensable nature of its functions, it has no equal. It presides over so many vital activities that even the slightest damage to it is fraught with serious consequences. Not only does it provide bile for the digestion of fats, but because of its location and the special circulatory pathways that converge upon it, the liver receives blood directly from the digestive tract and is deeply involved in the metabolism of all the principal foodstuffs. It stores sugar in the form of glycogen and releases it in glucose as in carefully measured quantities to keep the blood sugar at a normal level. It builds body proteins, including some essential elements of blood plasma concerned with blood clotting. It maintains cholesterol at its proper level in the blood plasma and inactivates the male and female hormones when they reach excessive levels. It is a storehouse of many vitamins, some of which contribute to its own proper functioning. Without a normally functioning liver, the body would be defense, disarmed, defenseless against the great variety of poisons which continually invade it. She goes on to it. Goes yeah, yeah. On. That's not even all of it. <laughs> but, you know, she's really good at like explaining these kind of mechanisms uh, in nature and also how they're all being poisoned. And so like, 
I just read it and I was just, I had a couple of reactions. One was like, it's interesting that this was like 1961. I always think about like what else is going on in the world. So this is like when Africa is, African decolonization is happening at the same time, right? And like with the 70s, there was all this like Small is Beautiful and all these other books that came out in the 70s. Soft Energy Paths by Amory Levins. Um, What are the other, there are some other big ones, right? From that time. Yeah. And that's also the time of like the OPEC oil cartel forming and like, you know, what Michael Hudson calls the global fracture. Uh, also, in terms, the yeah. Green Revolution was just getting launched, which was. Yeah, the counter. That's like a counter. These are all counter movements to the, the assertion of sovereignty by, uh, you know, Africa, Asia, um, Latin American revolutions going on. So it's it's just very interesting, like how these parallel things happen at these times. And I, I've been trying to figure out like how they're connected because I know they are connected. Um, and so you were reading it right in the 70s. Yeah. And uh, and did you find like I have a critique of it, obviously, like it is kind of a like she talks about the poisons and the nature and the biology, but she doesn't really um, she doesn't really seem to understand the economic mechanisms of why this is happening or like why U.S. industry is producing more and more poison continuously. Uh, well, I think she just um, didn't get into it. Um, yeah, I think she was, um, you know. But the, the impact of the book was to, you know, wake a lot of people up. Yeah. Danger of these particular compounds. And so I guess she figured you know, society could take it from there. Yeah, exactly, exactly. There's this kind of faith and awareness. Or, like, I guess it's just her, her role, right? She's a journalist. She understands. Uh, but she's, like, she's basically, like, we need to move to biological control you know, um, spiders, natural predators instead of pesticides, better regulation of pesticides. But like, I do think there's been a fair amount of this, but like she said some of her numbers, she's like, can you believe that there are, you know, hundreds of chemicals (laughs) or like thousands of completely engineered chemicals? And you're like, oh, that's cute. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I think now the register of chemicals in the, the can get into the human body. It has, I don't know, 80,000 of them yeah, or something. Yeah. So there's something like 100. Yeah, I've seen numbers like 100,000 industrial chemicals or 150,000 industrial chemicals. So that's great. Yeah, things have just gotten so much worse since she was writing. But I got onto this kind of chemical chemicals pollution kind of trail. So I found this other book called War and Nature, Fighting Humans and Insects with Chemicals from World War One to Silent Spring. I, I was at the York Library browsing to get Rachel's book, and I got this guy, Edmund Russell's book. And he talks about, like, it's an interesting connection, because I've been trying to figure out that connection between war and environmental yeah. destruction. So he takes it as, like, they're making poison gas to kill people in World War One, and they're making poison to kill bugs in World War One. And then there's just this kind of industry that arises for purposes of killing everything. (laughs) And it's just, they've done, they've, it's, it's very successful. They're, they got really good at what they do. 
and and it's kind of yeah. like I don't know, uh, you know, you you had this like this paragraph that I read about like how the actual point is not to grow grain, but to grow, uh, you know, meat and 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 ethanol to keep the prices high to gobble up the surplus. And it's like, I wonder if we could analyze like the chemical industry the same way as like because of the nature of war and the nature of um military industrial chemical complex you're always gonna have to have this industry that proliferates more and more uh chemicals and in some ways you're actually looking for nasty chemicals you're not just looking for healthy chemicals or something. and especially with the uh, so-called pesticide treadmill because nature yeah. um, insect species all of that they Fungi, they can um, evolve uh, very fast and, and much faster than technological progress can keep up and, and develop resistance to um, uh, to pesticides. I guess the most um, infamous current uh, uh, example is um, Roundup, uh, the herbicide. Uh, yeah, yeah, everybody was, yeah. We said, okay, we, we're going to yeah, have all the crops be Roundup uh, resistant, and yeah. plenty of people are saying, oh, you know what happens if, if you do that? You put yeah. a se- uh, selection pressure on um, weed species, and they're going to develop their own resistance. And sure enough, yeah. they, that's happened. So then, now, now you know they're having to use all these complex um, combinations of uh, herbicides. Right. And yeah, because the lifespan of insects is short. And so they they evolve. Yeah, they can evolve in response. So, I mean, um, I think we I I think we've done well in the sense that we've you know, we we have we have brought it to like a real bummer kind of (laughs) place. Right. Poison, poison everywhere. But but I mean, uh, this dispatch is also great because it's a. it's got this this great Plains Action Society and and what they're doing and and their their plans. Um, wh- where where to next? Do you know? Uh, well, just one more point in in case oh, yeah, it hasn't been uh, enough of a a bummer. The the other problem with these CO2 <laughs> pipelines is that if they uh, develop a leak, it comes they're they're under very high pressure. Sure. It becomes an explosion. And the, the, this happened in uh, uh, this little town, Satarsha, Mississippi, in uh, 2019 or 20. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the cloud of CO2 is heavier than the air around it, so it kind of creeps along the ground. And so it, it you know, crept into this town. Uh, there were like dozens of people ended up in the emergency room with CO2 oh. poisoning. It, it, um, the emergency vehicles who were trying to get in, um, or they were trying to you know, get the emergency vehicle started to attend to people because the, the CO2 kind of crowded out the oxygen out of the air, so the, uh, they, they couldn't can't start. get their cars started. But but yeah, it was a, a real oh. uh, disaster, and so it's um yeah the and that's with the very small 
uh, CO2 pipeline industry today. You start multiplying it up to try to sequester all of our CO2, it's, it's going to be uh, uh, tens or hundreds of thousands of miles of these pipelines. So, uh, again, I, you know, I, I've always said this about you and what you do, Stan, but it's like there's this kind of role of like, you know, this is not going to work. <laughs> so so it's not just a matter of having solutions. It's also a matter of weeding out solutions that are not going to work. And uh, yeah, so I think we're I think we're going to have to, uh, you know, in the spirit as left wingers, you know, we're into cancel culture. I think we're going to have to cancel uh, CO2 pipelines. I think that's yes. our conclusion, right? Yeah, cancel cancel the CO2 pipeline. Yeah. All right, thanks, Dan. Oh, yeah, but do you, do you didn't tell me what what do you have a plan for for October? Prairie Festival um, Press Prairie Festival report back. That's um, I'm going to be um, uh, interviewing at Prairie Festival, interviewing on stage um, young climate activist uh, Alexia LeClaire and uh, and I've talked to her she uh, she's got some really good analysis things um, and so I've got it's basically going to be um, uh, you know, I'll transcribe part of uh, you know whatever we talk about on stage and then I've got a couple of other interviews um, with I've got her, I've got a kind of a um, 30, 40 something um, year old uh, woman and then a woman in her 70s. And, and anyway, and they all generational. Yeah. yeah, they're all involved in uh, climate action. Awesome. All right. We'll look forward to that. Um, have a good Prairie Festival and we will see you in October. All right. Let's talk.